Hello, and welcome to another episode of Following the Way. I'm your host, Jason Dickey. On this episode, we want to discuss having a clean conscience and making sure we feel guilt over the sin around about us. This evening, I want to begin by looking at an idea that I came across a few years ago when teaching the book of Ezekiel, namely that we need to make sure that as people of God, that we feel the pain of the sin around about us, that we recognize debauchery and sin and evil that goes on around about us, and really discuss the importance of feeling those things. Now, couple caveats, I guess. First, I don't want you to misunderstand what I mean by feel. Uh, it isn't just an emotional sort of thing that I'm talking about. Uh, I think it runs a little bit deeper than that, but you'll understand better as we go, I think. And the other thing is that I think there's a danger when we start talking about this sort of topic, uh, especially in the language that it's used, because the two examples that we're going to look at uh, to kind of demonstrate this really seem to imply um, that this characteristic is something that is worthy of God saving you. And I don't think that that implies that this is uh, a powerful enough idea that it can exclusively save you. I don't want you to get the wrong idea about that at all. And I think that the real danger in that lies in that this is something that seems easy to us. When we start talking about Feeling, I'm, I'm going to continue to use that word, um, but I hope you understand uh, and will, will allow me to do to use that word. But as we feel the sin around about us, and I'm not talking about guilt for our own sin, I'm talking about recognizing the sin and the debauchery of the world around about us. When we see those things and we recognize those things, if that is something that saves us, we get excited because it means that there isn't a lot required of us. We don't have to do anything. And so it's easy for us to kind of latch on to this idea of being saved just because we recognize sin. And that isn't the point of this at all, but I do think that the language that is used in these two examples we are going to look at really do demonstrate and really do help us to understand how important this is. Just because there is a danger on one side doesn't mean that we should ignore it on the other. And so I I think it's worth our time to kind of consider these things here together for a few moments. Now, as we do that, uh, I I want to transition the conversation later on um, to a conversation about our conscience in general. Um, And we'll get to that uh, after we get through these two examples. As I said, the first example that I came across in regards to this idea of the importance of feeling the sin around about us, of recognizing the sin around about us, is in Ezekiel chapter 9. Now, the prophet Ezekiel was prophesying to the people of God who had already borne uh, the judgment of God in a very real sense. These are the people who are already in Babylonian captivity. There were three groups of captive taken into Babylon, and Ezekiel went with the second group. And so his prophecies are to people who are already captive, 
And through the first part of the book, a lot of what he says to these people is, Jerusalem isn't going to save you. You are not going to be saved by Jerusalem. God is going to judge Jerusalem and destroy it, and you're not going to find salvation from there. And so this message in the book of Ezekiel is really pretty dark, and the majority of the book is pretty dark, as he goes through, with pretty horrific language, the judgments of the things that are going to happen on the people of God, before he can then transition into talking about salvation. And all that background is interesting because, particularly here in Ezekiel chapter 9, where we want to turn our attention, Ezekiel has a vision of what's going on in the temple back in Jerusalem. And so, we could spend a lot of time talking about what it means when he goes back and visions to Jerusalem, whether he was really there, just saw it, whether this really happened, and all those sorts of things. And I don't have the answers to those questions, and that doesn't really uh, concern us right now. What is interesting and what we do want to look at is this vision that he has going back to Jerusalem and seeing all the sin and the debauchery of the things that are going on there. And in um, uh, chapter 8, he sees these debaucheries. He sees all the horrible things that they're doing. And in fact, as he gets closer and closer into the temple courtyard and closer to the holiest of holies, the more idolatry and the more wickedness is going on. And so then in chapter 9, we get this vision of God's judgment coming upon the temple grounds specifically. And so it says in verse 2, Behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each, each with his shattering weapon in his hand. And among them was a certain man clothed in linen with a writing case at his loins. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. So what we're going to see is these six men come, uh, and they are going to judge the city. But amongst them is a man clothed in linen with a writing case at his loins. And if you skip down to verse 4, it says, The Lord said to him, this is the man in linen who has the, the writing instruments, Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. But to the others he said in my hearing, Go through the city after him and strike. Do not let your eye have pity and do not spare. And then he talks about how he's going to judge them all. But he says, do not touch any man on whom is the mark and you shall start from my sanctuary. So they started with the elders who were before the temple. I skipped some of the gruesome language there because that's a little beside the point of what we want to focus on. The idea here is that there is a scribe, essentially, who runs through all of Jerusalem, and marks on the foreheads of everybody who, it says specifically, sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. Isn't that striking? All these people are going to be slaughtered, are going to be killed because of the sin that's going on, because they're participating in it. What does it say about these men that are going to be spared? What are they doing? They're not doing anything, as far as we know. Simply, they sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. Now, I think that there is an implication there that they are doing something, that they are righteous, that something positive is going on. I do think also the implication in the way that this is written is that it didn't take very long for the scribe to mark the people who were doing these things. So, I don't think that there was a whole lot of them. I think that's kind of what's implied here. 
But the fact of the matter is, the way this is worded is to strongly emphasize this idea to mark the men who sigh and groan over the abominations that are being committed. So the question is, do we sigh and groan over the abominations that are committed around about us? And if we don't, what does that say about us? I mean, this is a pretty important characteristic that God's people need to have. And then, if you'll turn with me to Second uh, Peter chapter 2, uh, and turn your attention to, to another passage there, uh, j- just another example of this sort of idea that I want us to think about quickly. And in Second Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 7, I will start in verse 6. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, and here's the key, verse 8, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Okay, so we picked up in the middle of a thought there, and you can kind of see what Peter is getting at when you read verse 9, where he talks about how the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment. You know, that's kind of what he's getting to. So he gives these examples. And he gives this really interesting example of Lot. If you go back and read the passages in Genesis about Lot, it's pretty fascinating. The first thing he does is he kind of swindles Abraham to get the best land. Then he moves into the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, even though they're very wicked. And then when the angel comes to bring them out, he doesn't really want to go. So the angels actually grab him and his family and drag them out of the city. And then after the city's destroyed, he gets so depressed he gets drunk uh, and doesn't take care of his family the way that he should. So his daughters lie with him so they can have children after they get him drunk. So, it, you know, Lot doesn't exactly have a pretty good track record of doing great things here uh, in the Bible account. And yet, here Peter calls him righteous Lot. And that's always fascinated me. I mean, it's always absolutely fascinated me. And I don't know that I have all the answers to that, but I do think that this plays in perfectly to what we've already started to talk about from Ezekiel. Look at what it says. He felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. He could have left the city. He could have gone somewhere else. He could have been more eager to leave with his family when the time came. And he could have handled his life a lot better in the little bits that we have written about him. But notice what Paul, or Peter sorry, is emphasizing. That he felt his righteous soul tormented by the debauchery of the city around about him. He saw the sin around about him and it tormented his soul. And because of that, he is considered righteous. And the Lord rescued him from that situation. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't that absolutely fascinating? Here we have two really powerful examples of how much God wants us to be people who are tormented by the sin around about us, who recognize the sin around about us, who 
are uh, not given to ignore the sin around about us. We don't get used to it. But it bothers us. And so, I mean, there's a pretty easy question, you know, to follow that up with, right? Are you tormented by the sin around about you? And we can take this in all sorts of different directions about what that means and how to uh, consider that um, the, and, and discuss specifics about that. But I, I want to turn our attention to another discussion here briefly. But before I do, think back to this conversation that we had on compassion. And in that podcast where we talk about the compassion of Jesus, the emphasis seems to be in the way the New Testament is written and in the example of Jesus, that we appraise the world the way that he does, that we see people in need and have compassion on them the way that Jesus had compassion on them. That is important. And this is right in line with that same sort of idea that we look at the world and we are tormented by the sin and the broken nature of the world the same way that uh, those who were marked in Ezekiel 9 are, the way that Lot was in Sodom and Gomorrah. But I think even more importantly, the way that God is when he sees the sin and the sickness in the world. You know, this kind of comes back to a, a greater conversation that I'd like to spend more time on in another podcast about how we read the Bible and how we grow and how we become better. And the answer is not necessarily to look at specific commands and to do specific things that are listed. Rather, it is a way of understanding and appraising the world the way that God does. And the only way to do that is to read the Bible more. And we're going to come back to that idea some more as well here in a little bit. But I want us to kind of pivot this conversation because I think that really to kind of understand what we're talking about a little bit better, we need to talk about the conscience in general. We need to talk about our conscience in general. And typically, um, uh, amongst the people that I know and in the sorts of sermons that I've heard and in Bible classes, we, we are always a little bit wary to say that we need to let our conscience be our guide because we're quick to point out that our conscience isn't the perfect guide, that it doesn't matter what you feel, it matters what is actually right. And so it, it doesn't matter whether you feel guilty about it or not, like some things are just wrong whether you feel guilty or not. And you can jump to Acts 23.6 where uh, Paul is sitting there and he's talking about how um, he did everything with a clean conscience. Even though he also considers himself the chiefest of all sinners. So clearly his conscience was not the perfect guide when it came to persecuting the church. Because that was wrong and it was sinful. And so even though he did it with a clean conscience, it doesn't make it okay. And so we'll look at that as, as the, uh, we'll take that exception and make that kind of the rule that we don't really want to emphasize the importance of the conscience. But again, I think that there's a lot of language within the New Testament that really emphasizes and talks about the importance of letting our conscience guide us. Or at least to build up a good conscience. Uh, Paul talks about this in his letters to Timothy and to Titus. But in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 5. Paul's writing here to Timothy, and he says to him, But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The idea here is that you have a good conscience, 
Skipping down to verse 18 in the same chapter, this command I entrust you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Keeping the faith and a good conscience. I mean, I think the idea here is pretty clear, isn't it? That we need to protect our conscience and we need to allow it to guide us, to be something that is soft and malleable and directs us in the right way. I mean, there's several other places in the New Testament where there's a larger conversation about the importance of respecting your conscience. Um, the uh, Paul writes to both uh, the church in Rome, in Romans 14, and to the church at Corinth in, in 1 Corinthians 8 about meat sacrificed to idols. And if you're not familiar with those contexts, I encourage you to go and read those chapters and um, and write in if you have questions. Maybe we'll discuss it on another podcast. But basically, those conversations boil down to this idea of if it bothers your conscience, and if you can't do it with a clean conscience, then don't do it. That is sin at that point. If your conscience tells you it's wrong, then don't do it because it is sin. And so there's a strong emphasis within those conversations on respecting your conscience, on allowing it to guide you. And just like Paul's writing to Timothy here, we need to have a good conscience. So, I, I think it's also interesting to maybe make a connection between our, good, uh, between our conscience, something that we all have. It doesn't work as well for some of us as it does for others, but it's something that we all have. But I think it's also connected to God. And in the way that we are created. In Genesis chapter 3, before Adam and Eve have sinned, before uh, they eat of the fruit, the serpent tells them that once you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, like gods or like God, discerning good and evil. That's what he tells them. And then when they eat, it says their eyes are opened and they knew that they were naked. I think the idea here is that our conscience is a recognition of the evil that we have done. It is a recognition of what we have done wrong. The conscience was awakened when their eyes were opened. It wasn't awakened before then because they had done no wrong. They had done nothing to show them that they had done something wrong. They had no remorse from those things. In Romans 2, to kind of further this point that I think our conscience is something that's given to us from God, look at the way that, that Paul writes to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 2, because here, as he's writing uh, to this church, he kind of starts off by talking about the sin of the world. And in the first three chapters, he kind of methodically goes through and talks about the sin of the Jews, the sin of the Gentiles, how everybody has sinned. And so in Romans chapter 2, starting in verse, uh, sorry, starting in verse 14, it says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. 
on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So, I mean, he's going to go on to talk about the solution to this problem of sin, which is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But here, look at what he's saying. Even the Gentiles who don't have the law of God, they did not have the commands of God. And yet, even them instinctively did some of the things of the law. And you can see that. You can look at all sorts of different laws from the ancient Near East and look at how similar they are to the law of Moses, some before, some after. And it's because of this idea of the conscience being placed in us and us recognizing what is right and wrong. And so their conscience bears witness and their thoughts, you know, alternately accuse or defend them based on what they've done. So all that's very well and good. I I hope you can kind of follow that train of thought about the conscience being from God and something that we respect, something that we listen to. And hopefully you see the connection between that and this idea of recognizing that sin and the world around about us. And so we started off talking about recognizing things around about us and we kind of transitioned to our conscience, which is recognizing within ourselves um, what we do and whether it is right or wrong. But I think there's two limitations to the idea of our conscience that I want us to consider. Two limitations. And the first is that our conscience can be defiled. It can become corrupted. That's why Paul, when he's writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, talks about a good conscience. That is something that we need to have, a good conscience, that we need to protect it. That we need to keep it from becoming defiled. And really, it's true, almost immediately upon entering the world, our conscience becomes, starts to become defiled. Every time we do something wrong, and we ignore our conscience about it, it comes a little bit harder. It becomes a little bit more scarred. Every time we look out our window, look into our television, uh, just see the world around about us, and we ignore, or at the very least, start to not appreciate the sin that's around about us. Our conscience, this attitude that we need to have to be saved about recognizing sin, we become a little more scarred. We become a little more defiled. And the fact of the matter is society wants our conscience to appraise what society does. Society wants our conscience to match what society and culture does. And now this can be a huge application, right? Because every day we're interacting with people. Every day we have the media. We have uh, things in front of our face telling us what we should or shouldn't say. uh, How we should evaluate things. What is right? What is wrong? What is acceptable? What is unacceptable? And what's scary about that is the more society changes the way that we view things, the more our conscience falls in line with that. It becomes more and more defiled. And the standard of what we should or shouldn't do changes daily when we allow those things to pass before our eyes without assessing them, without understanding them. The point there that I'm, that I'm trying to make is not that we need to be hermits and hide ourselves from every kind of sin, television, all those sorts of things, you know, the news, whatever. That's not my point. My point is that we need to be aware of what's going on around about us. And we need to appraise those things and make sure that we don't let them 
begin to creep in and affect our conscience and affect the way that we view the world. But then the second limitation of our conscience is that our conscience is only as good as we train it to be. And it can only tell us what we did wrong. It can't tell us how to make it right. It can't tell us how to make things better. That's why it's so important to read the Bible, to think about the Bible. In, in these podcasts, we're I'm not necessarily doing any deep dives into any particular text. It isn't a, a rigorous Bible study. Uh, I think that those are immensely important, and I encourage any and all of you who are listening to do that, to read your Bible, to study your Bible. And I hope that maybe the things that I say in these podcasts are something that encourage you to look a little bit deeper into your Bibles to understand things. And that's what I want us to kind of take away from this conversation here as well. Because we are constantly seeing things, absorbing things, information, ideas, all the time. But we need something to balance that out. We need something... And we need a way of assessing that. And that comes from the Bible. And again, it isn't about reading the Bible to get a list of commands of what you can or cannot do. But the more you read, the more you start to see what is right and what is wrong. You start to have a clearer picture on what the world should be. On the way that we should live. On the things that we should say and do to the people around about us. Not in a curse word, clean language sort of way. But in a positive, compassionate, loving, good conscience sort of way. The more we absorb good things and the more we can understand those things, the better we can express those around about, uh, every day to the world around about us. And that's the idea here. Look, it's easy to look at this conversation about Well, as long as we just can see the sin of the world, then we're okay. Then we'll be saved. And that sounds great. Takes all the pressure off, right? I don't have to worry about doing this or that. As long as I just feel bad about sin, not even just my sin, but sin around about me, then I'm a I'm gonna be saved. And that's that's good. And that gets us excited because it takes takes pressure off of trying to attain to some ideal. But the fact of the matter is, that's not the idea. The idea is that understanding those things should drive us to see it better, to see it more clearly, to understand even more about right and wrong. And the only way to do that is by going back to the standard. Hopefully this conversation, hopefully these thoughts about our conscience and about uh, the way in which we uh, appraise the world are encouraging to you, uh, that they are positive, uh, and hopefully this encourages you to go back and, and read some more in your Bibles. I, I didn't take the time to read Hebrews 9 and 10, which talks specifically about our consciences being made pure through the blood of Jesus, through the sacrifice of the Son of God who died and was resurrected. Um, you know, that's, that's, the, that's the process by which you come back from... Uh, a defiled conscience from a defiled worldview. But hopefully 
um, from this, we can simply try and maintain what we have. I, hopefully that this is something that can encourage us to be proactive about not falling to the point of um, complete defilement, but being able to see the world as we should. Thank you so very much uh, for your attention. And just over the next few days, over the next week, think about this idea and think about and consider and, and be reflective on the way that you view the world, on the way you view your own sin. Do you protect your conscience? Do you uh, see the world full of its sin and sickness? Um, and, and do you recognize the problems that are there? Because if you don't see the problem, you can't accept the solution. And so that's kind of the idea. And, and maybe that'll encourage you to read your Bibles and to kind of fill yourself up with the goodness of God a little bit more this week as well. This has been another episode of Following the Way. Thank you so very much for listening. And as always, if you would like to get in contact with the podcast, please feel free to email at followingthewaypodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so very much for your support, and I look forward to talking with you next time.